Ladies and gentlemen, Bonnie Wayman, super excited that you're here. I'm going to do an introduction to kind of tee up the conversation, but I'm actually super excited to pick your brain and learn from you. But for everybody listening, Bonnie has an MBA from the University of Denver. She's a mother. She's a equestrian. She is a real estate investor and most recently an asset manager, which I'm learning all about. We even got to talk a little bit about it before we, before we started podcasting. But I wanted to start with a little anecdote or a, a story to kind of paint the picture for how I started to learn about your expertise and all that you have going on, especially in the world of, of real estate investing. But 2019, I think, it might have been whenever Darren and I went to EMT school, what year was that? Uh, 2019, 2019, I think, because that was when Hudson was born, right? Yeah. When- so yeah, 2018, 2019, something like that. Me and Darren, Bonnie's husband, were in night EMT classes together. And the way that we did it is we took turns carpooling and we both live in, we live in Hesperus. The class was in Bayfield and it was in the dead of winter, night (laughs) classes. We both had full-time jobs. But anyway, what it did is it gave us a whole lot of windshield time to sit and talk and, you know, learn. And I had so much fun learning from Darren about all things investing at the time. Who knows? The stock market's always doing something, but we were talking about, you know, stock market investing and after several, you know, multiple hour long carpool drives, Bayfield and back, he started learning more about your guys' experience in real estate investing and, and all of that good stuff. And actually it was really cool for me because it got my gears turning and, you know, got me setting goals. And during those drives is when I set a goal for my first single family I didn't know investment. That. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Talking to Darren and I'm like, holy cow, it is doable. And, uh, you know, since then it sort of transitioned from, uh, well, using the stock market as a vehicle to get to real estate investing. But I also think, and part of why I'm so excited to pick your brain is because I've been able to see the evolution of your real estate investing kind of from a layer layer removed. Do you mind humoring me and, and sharing with the audience kind of your experience in real estate investing and where it started, how it evolved? Because I'm so excited for people to get to learn from you and all of the experience that you have, because there's just so much, there's so much there. But I think before we dive in on that, we'd love to just hear the journey and how you started in real estate investing and kind of, kind of paint me the picture of, of what got us to where we are today. Yeah. So I started, um, I was in college and credit goes to my parents for the idea here. And I was a sophomore in college at DU and they required you to live on campus again for a second year. And we were in these new dorms, but they were really isolating. And I just hated living there. I was sick of campus food. We were paying like, I don't know, something stupid, like $900 a month to live in these little shoebox dorms. And I was with my parents and I was like, man, you know, if I could figure out how to get out of this, you know, one of the things is if you own a property within, I don't remember what it was, 50, 75 miles of campus, you can opt out. And this was 2008 in Denver. And my parents were like, well, we would, you know, sign a loan and maybe help you with a down payment if you rented it out to your friends. Do you think you could find enough friends to cover the mortgage? And I was like, well, that's an idea. And so, um, you know, back in 2008, you could buy a house in Denver for two, $300,000. And so I reached out to a bunch of realtors, most of which ignored me and thought that I wasn't worth their time. But uh, Valley, 
There's a lesson to all <laughs> Valley Hooker, shout out to you. She took me seriously and we bought a property my sophomore year of college and I rented it out to my roommates. I think our mortgage was like 1500 We each paid $500. Um, it's called a house hack is the term that people call it now. But basically you can either buy a duplex and live in one side and rent out the other side or buy a single family house and rent out by room, which is what I did. And so I had roommates my entire time in college and after it was a 1400 square foot house at one point we had five people living in there but I mean we were just putting money down and just paying that mortgage down cuz we were you know $500 a month plus utilities per person was a great deal for all my friends and was more than the mortgage and so well, I lived there for seven years, I think. And then Darren and I decided we wanted to move back to Durango and we sold it. And um, at that point, I was working, I think I was working in healthcare and marketing. And I think I was making like 50000 or something a year. And we sold the house for 100000 in profit. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a lot easier than working my job. That's interesting. And so took that, bought our house out here in Hespers in 2014. And then it took me a couple years to gain confidence to buy an investment property. I uh, went online to biggerpockets.com. I listened to every single podcast, did all of that. And in uh, end of 2017, we finally bought our first single family property in Durango. The numbers weren't great. I wouldn't do it again. or I wouldn't do that deal now, but I'm glad I did it because it gave me the confidence of really becoming a landlord, not just a house hack, but just owning the property and renting it out to some tenants. So I did that. And then I did a couple more single families and then Durango became unaffordable. So I had a friend from high school who was a realtor in Junction and I was like, hey, Junction, uh, Grand Junction still feels more affordable. What if I went to a duplex? I'm going to take a big step. And this is, I think, a common thing in most real estate investors' journey is like, okay, a single family. Okay, maybe a duplex. Okay, maybe a try. Anyways, so just slowly starting that scale. And I said, okay, uh, Reese, he's my partner now. Uh, can you find me a duplex? And he said, well, I can find you a duplex for 300000 or here's a sixplex for 400000 and so um, I ran the numbers on it, and I was like, well, that makes so much more sense than the single family does. And so I bought a sixplex. That was 2020. And then in- and wasn't that one pretty run down? I remember seeing it on social, or I think it was that one, like oh. tons of rehab and work and remodeling. And- um, I don't buy pretty things <laughs> for the most part. Um, the, the sixplex was... Not as bad as the one you saw on social. Okay, that was the next one. Okay. Um, the sixplex, but it was a little yucky. I've spent, uh, I've redone every single unit now at this point, just kind of slowly as it turned over, fix it up. Um, I believe as a landlord, it's my responsibility to provide a great place for people to live. I'm not interested in being a slumlord. That doesn't align with who I am. And yeah, I'm just not interested in it. So yeah, so that property was great. And then Reese and I decided to partner and we bought two more multi small multifamily properties in 2021 and 2022. And the one that you saw on social media, whew, uh, yeah, we had a tenant that we had inherited when we bought the property and he moved out and just, there was like foot tall furball dust bunnies. It was bad. It was so yeah. gross. <laughs> so when, well, a couple of questions because- it's so cool to hear 
and then obviously there's still more more evolution that we'll get to. But yeah. when you took that initial leap when you were in college, it sounds like, you know, obviously you had some amazing supportive parents that were uh, equally risk willing, I'll call it risk loving or, or something like that. But I'm curious because that was definitely that was obviously your first venture into it. Had they had any experience in real estate investing or was this kind of a first first journey for for both of you guys? My parents were not landlords at all. No, they own farmland, but not any investment properties. But um, my parents are entrepreneurs, and I think that they saw it was 2008. So, like, nothing was selling. Um, and I think that they saw that opportunity as well. But they said, We would support you in this, but they didn't do anything. But it's like, all it's you. your, yeah. your baby. If you want to do this, you do the work. Like, they were completely hands off the whole way except helping me secure the financing. Wow. So it was kind of like, I don't think that they thought that they were going to propel me into being a real estate investor. They were just like, well, this makes sense financially. It's 2008. Houses are cheap. Probably going to go up. It's Denver, Colorado. What's that Warren Buffett saying? Be fearful when others are greedy yep. and greedy when others are fearful. Yeah. 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 And that's kind of... It's been interesting since I haven't bought a property since 2022 personally, and it's kind of the opposite of that, is that the market has been so hot that it's been really hard to make sense of numbers. And we keep putting offers in on deals and just being like, this does not make sense. And so we are the opposite of that right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Time to be fearful maybe a little bit. Yeah. So first of all, hats off to you and and what a remarkable story of... Being willing to take a risk. Well, first, actually identifying an opportunity, because I, I relate so much to that initial bit of like, I want to get out of the dorm. How? <laughs> you know, like I'd done my year of shower shoes. Yeah, like, <laughs> I was done. Figure it out, and then you see that if you own a property, and then you had this mentality of, well, I'm going to find a way to own a property. I've 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 been down paths like that many of times, where it's like I know that that's going to happen. I got to figure out how how that's going to happen. But it, really cool to see the problem solving that was involved early on, the willingness to take a risk and, you know, figure out the logistics behind it. But then it also seems like there was pretty rapid progression. And obviously, you know, some of that money helps, you know, selling a, selling a property and having the appreciation from it and things like that. But walk me through the steps from, because I would imagine there's a lot of people listening that, you know, are saving for their first investment property or have one or, you know, whatever. And then they look at these Grant Cardones of the world yeah. that are owning, you know, all of these apartment complexes and things like that. And some, somewhere a journey happened, a process happened. How did you go from single family to multiple of them? Like what, what are the logistics? What's the, just even the process and how did, what was your methodology and how you grew your, your real estate investment portfolio? Yeah. So first of all, most of it happened before kids and we were double income, no kids. And so I didn't take a single dollar out of my rental properties until 2021, I think. So I basically had rental properties for five years and took every single dollar out of them back into them and never paid myself from them. Um, so even, that's even the cash flow, even the right. The rent? cash flow went back in probably for a down payment for the next one or to fix up a first one. Wow. So we didn't take any payments for 
what, end of 2017 to, yeah, four or five years. Just stacking it. Just didn't touch it. Both my husband and I had jobs. We had pretty low expenses. We didn't have kids. We lived in the country. We're both pretty frugal for most things except for the equestrian bit. But um, <laughs> There's no such thing as frugal equestrian. <laughs> um, besides, besides that, I'm really frugal. <laughs> and so we just, just reinvested back in the company. And now we're at a point that we're paying ourselves from the cash flow. Yeah. But some of that delayed gratification on that, just investing back in it, doing rehabs and some luck in the market timing, right? You know, rents have gone up in most places 20%. And so some luck and then just keeping the money in them. Yeah. And then, so are you selling properties to buy more and diversifying that way? Are you refinancing? Are you leveraging equity? Like what, how are, how are you? Yeah. And, and actually to clarify that too, what's the current portfolio looking like just in terms of units or yeah I, have I don't know the you know all the good all the verbiage you but said what, doors that's how correct doors? how yeah. many doors I have that's a good question more than 15 less than 20 cool I think I have 17 so in terms of I've sold two single families but most of them I'm a really unsexy investor I just like buy them and hold them for a really long time my goal is to for the properties that I like, buy and hold them till the mortgage is paid off, and then it's all cash flow. Yeah, that's the goal. And well, that's so. I don't didn't mean to cut you yeah, off. Yeah, no, but go ahead. That that's such a such a good principle, and for investing in general, uh, yeah. I, I, like no one wants to get rich slow, but that's the way. That's it. Invest and hold. Invest and hold. Anyway, keep keep going with where you were going with that, though. No, I agree with that. And just a slight tangent with that is that if somebody's telling you that you can invest with them in real estate or take their course or whatever. And all of a sudden you're going to make millions of dollars in real estate in one year. Like that's a red flag. And they're probably trying to sell you something. There's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. I mean, there's for sure outlier stories of people doing uh, wholesales or flipping that make massive amounts of money in year one or year two. But for the most part, especially if you have other jobs or families and other things you want to focus on, it's a get rich slow game. Now it's like a really, I mean, there's big payoffs in the end, but it's slow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what's the downside then? Or like, what's the, the talk to me about, you know, risk assessment. And I, I totally wrap my head around, the get rich slow idea, buy and hold, you know, where could it go wrong? Or what are some things that people should be aware of for, you know, if they're, they're kind of looking at opportunities or looking at deals or however it might be like, what, what would your advice be on? And actually to follow up on that, have you ever had one go wrong? I think the first deal I bought was not a great deal. Um, I still own it, honestly, because my tenants are lovely and they just had a baby and I just cannot sell that property. And so uh, this is why I hire property managers because I'm not a great landlord because I get too emotionally connected to my tenants. But um, sorry. I got downside. Downside. Yeah. So um, a lot of it is before you buy the property is protecting your downside. And so in a real estate investment, when you're buying something, it's just a numbers game. It's not an emotional game. You're just looking at the numbers. It doesn't matter if the house is cute. I guess you can, if you're a flipper, maybe this is a different story. But if you're buy and hold investor and you're going to have tenants in there, it is a numbers game. And the numbers don't lie. The mortgage is this much. You need to set aside money for renovations. You need to set aside money for CapEx. 
And there's tons of different calculators out there. Um, I know on the Bigger Pockets podcast or Bigger Pockets website, there's a free calculator and it will give you like what's your cash on cash return? What's your what's the cap rate? And it gives you like some baseline numbers. And so I think one of the ways you can get in trouble is not understanding all of the costs that come with it because the mortgage is not the only cost. There's going to be expenses. And so you uh, prepare for like repairs and maintenance, which is like, oh, the washer, you know, broke. I need to hire a plumber to come out. But you also need to prepare for like, oh, the roof needs to be replaced and that's $15,000. If this property only cash flows 300 a month, I better have been setting aside some money over time because that can really kill people. You know, uh, something, a sewer line broke and you have to dig it up and it's $10,000. If you have not been preparing and being conservative on your numbers, that can break you. And that's a lot of the reason why you just put it back in. Yeah. You're building cash reserves. I mean, yeah. like, are, are you always literally investing it back in or sometimes you're putting the cat, those early days before you were taking it any, you were kind of having rainy day funds? Yeah, huge. Properties? I mean, my personal, everybody has different rules. I have $10,000 in cash sitting in each bank account for each property yeah. because you just never know. And that's, uh, I'm a hugely risk adverse person. And I, you know, I'm, if I make a bad investment mistake, I'm messing up my family. You know, I take it very seriously. And I think that there's people who are more risk tolerant, who probably grow faster. But for me, it's always been like, I'm not interested in losing like our personal residence or anything for the kids over this. Right. And so I'd rather go slower and more carefully. And I think just one other thing on protecting your downside is just being aware of like shiny object syndrome. And like there was a huge Airbnb boom and everyone's like, well, this property cash flows as an Airbnb. But they didn't think about like, well, what if Airbnb changes? What if the town changes regulations and now you can't do it as an Airbnb? And so always having multiple exit strategies, like if you're a flipper and you buy a house, can that property at least break even if you have to rent it? If you're buying it as an Airbnb, can it also, could you sell it for a profit or could you long-term long -term rent it and not lose your shirt. Right. And so like, I think that's the other piece is thinking through multiple scenarios, you know, and what's great about real estate is even in a recession, people still need places to rent. And honestly, real estate is so much more stable in recessions because most people that are maybe on the cusp of buying a home or not, they're renters then instead of homeowners. And so those people, then you have these great tenants in your property right. through that recession time period. So it's, I think, much less fickle than the stock market as long as you're being careful yeah. on the downside up front. It's so funny that you bring up the cash reserves. So we we ended up, we got our first long-term rental in 2021. First year, I had to replace the furnace. Yeah, good times. There goes, you know, the whole first year's cash flow. Yay. And then just recently, I had to replace all the windows in the whole house. <gasps> There it goes oh, again, you know, yeah. but it's still, we're, we're super proud of it and it, it's all. It's and great, in the long term, thing. right? As long as you're prepared for those expenses and then you have a long-term mindset, that property is going to make you a ton of money. Yeah. But if you were taking your last penny to buy an investment property and you weren't properly capitalized and you weren't being prepared for that, that could have caused a huge issue. So, well, a couple of things too, because I want to dive into that on you know, being capitalized and kind of prepping for real estate investment. But um, before you mentioned you had a, a, some verbiage, 
some terminology that I need clarification on. Yeah. What's CapEx? Yeah. So it's capital expenditures. So there's a tax component of that in which that is things that can be depreciated. But it's basically, in layman's terms, like the bigger items on your property, things that have like a set year life, like a washing machine replacement would be a CapEx expense versus a washing machine repair would go under the repairs. It's more important as you get into the bigger multifamily because it capital expenditures go below the line on the NOI and expenses go above the line. Right. And in big multifamily properties, the NOI is like your golden line item. And so understanding what goes above and below the line in there and and just your budgets are different. Got it. But on a smaller property, it's CapEx items are something that is probably more than the cash flow for the month and things that won't happen every year. You're not going to have to replace the windows every year, right? Once you've done it, you're kind of done with that. But but being prepared for those big items. Got it. And cap rate? How do you calculate cap rate? Cap rate has to do with your NOI. And this is only, cap rate really only matters in the bigger multifamily. You don't, cap rate doesn't, even in small multifamilies, you don't really care about the cap rate. Cool. It has to do with your NOI and the price. And then the uh, cap rate has to do with market sentiment. And so basically when you're operating a large multifamily property, you're trying to increase your NOI because it's just a formula to get your selling price based on the, and the cap rate has to do more with your market and how people feel about that market. Got it. Cool. Yeah. Um, so coming back to, you know, uh, now I forget the words you use for it, but basically getting ready to invest in real estate and things like that. I'd be curious your advice for, cause I think it, especially with the, the circles that I run in, at least it, the concept of investing in real estate is, generally looked at with a very positive, you know, like everybody knows it's a generally a good idea. Right. Most millionaires own real estate for a reason. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, we kind of understand <laughs> that. But I do think that especially the world of real estate, there's barriers to entry. Yeah. Um, obviously, you have to have money to invest in, in real estate. Personally, what I've been doing is putting my money into the stock market, using that as my vehicle to getting to the point where then I can can purchase real estate, but I would love to hear your opinion or your advice, your tips for, you know, people that are listening that are like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, <laughs> but you know, how do I get 60 grand or, or whatever? And, and so I guess a two-part question, one would be your tips or advice for, for how people can kind of start to set themselves up for success to, to pursue the, the dream of, of real estate investing. Part number two would be any like, insider, you know, your expert tips on like, you can put this much down, or if you look for this type of deal, you could get, you could get in like that. Syndicates, I think are probably a topic of conversation in there as well. But so how can we get started? And then what are some like underutilized gaps or, or opportunities people could look for too, to, to help them get started? Yeah. So the coolest thing about real estate is there's like a million ways you can make money. So so there's two things. You either are somebody who has more time and not as much money, or you're somebody who has more money and not as much time. And so I would say the recommendations for how you would invest in real estate are really different depending on which bucket you fall in. So let's start with the oops, the bucket of the person who has more time and not as much money. So the first thing, which is what I did, which is a house hack, would be my recommendation 
as the easiest, least risky way to get into real estate. And I don't know all the details, but in the last year, Freddie just announced that they allow, I believe it's 5% down for up to four units. So you could buy a four unit building, live in one, rent out three. And the other piece of that is that the rental income from those other units counts towards your income when they're calculating how much you're approved for on your loan. Wow. So you can get in. I mean, there's people who've become millionaires by house hacking. You can buy a new property every two years if you are single or you have an adventurous spouse or an adventurous spouse and kids. Or no horses. And no horses. <laughs> no horses. It's not great for equestrians. <laughs> you can move. You can buy a house hack every two years. And if you've lived in the property for two years, you can sell it with no capital gains ever. So you could buy a duplex, live in it for two years. Probably the rental income from the other one will completely cover or mostly cover your mortgage. And then you can live in there for two years. You can either then after two years, you can buy another one or you can sell that one, pay no capital gains on it and buy another one. Like that to me is the most accessible way to get into real estate and um, you know, if you're military, there's special programs for you, but lots of different ways with low down payment, 5% down, owner occupied, up to four units. Yeah. Like that's doable. The risk of that is so low. Like what your tenant doesn't pay for a month. So you pay a mortgage for a month instead of you would already be paying a mortgage right. a month, you know? It's like And those two, even if it's not cash flowing. Right. Like, you know, where else are you gonna rent something for a couple hundred bucks or, you know, whatever. But even if it doesn't, even if it's not covering all of it, yeah, you're still ahead because you, you, otherwise you'd be paying in rent. Right. Let's say you buy a house with an ADU in the back and the ADU rents for a thousand and your mortgage is 2000. Like, will you just cut your monthly housing expense in half? And that's the biggest part of most people's expense. Yeah. So I would say house hack. The other thing is if you are somebody who has a lot of time and not a lot of money, but maybe you're handy or creative or something like that, a partnership. Because there's so there's somebody on this other side who has a lot of money but not a lot of time who might be interested in flipping. And you bring the sweat equity, they bring the actual equity, and you have some sort of partnership there. Um, there's plenty of money to be made that way too. You know, you hustle, you find a good deal. You bring a good deal to somebody who has money. And you say you're going to run the renovation like all day. Yeah. You know? And so it's so, really just being creative and keeping an eye out for keeping an eye out for opportunities. Yeah. I think the idea that you have to sit and wait for to be able to buy a rental property in your market with 20% down is a very, very, very slow way to get there. Yeah. <laughs> and like also investing out of state. Like we live in Durango. It doesn't really it's hard and expensive to buy rental properties here and they don't pencil super great. And so being interested or open to looking at other markets, I know it's scary, but you know, vetting your property manager, understanding the area, maybe you have friends, maybe you have family, something in another market where the numbers make more sense. There's a, something called the 1% rule, which is basically if you buy a property for a hundred thousand dollars, it should rent for a thousand dollars a month. Mm. So this is like, please don't buy a property based off of that. But that's like 
gives you an idea. A rule of thumb. Yeah, yeah, a rule of thumb gives you an idea of like where are you. So in Durango, if you buy a property for six hundred thousand, it rents for two thousand. Like you can already tell not going to work. You're not going to be able to cash flow this. Like even if you're an excellent operator unless you're paying cash, you cannot cash flow it. You know, so that 1% rule can be helpful looking at markets to just be like, okay, where does this lie here on the spectrum? Oh, it's 300,000 and I can rent it for 2700. Okay, that's, you know, that's close to the 1% right. rule. This might make sense. Maybe I'll dig into it a little deeper. How do you research other markets? Like, cause, and I think especially for the Durango, you know, the Durango audience, yeah. that, that's like, oh, of course, you know, need to figure, I, I travel a medium amount for work yeah. and all the time when I do, you know, I'm on Zillow and looking at the real estate market and every time I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> you can get a whole lot of house out here for, you know, wherever. I was just down in New Braunfels, Texas, amazing people down there. The and beautiful homes for they have new construction homes starting in the 200s. I'm like, you got to be kidding me! It's crazy. But um, you know, I think that obviously probably is going to pique some interest for people. What? How do you even? I mean, I guess it sounds like you you get in touch with a good property manager. That's how you could get some ideas of rents and what the market looks, you know, in general, things like that. Yeah, I think it also depends on what's your goal. So, is your goal appreciation? Do you want to sell this property in three years and you're hoping you make money off of it? Now, I caveat that with I think uh, betting on appreciation is betting. But, you know, there's markets that are appreciating more than others, you know. Would you say that lack of appreciation is a reason not to? For example, there's a neighboring market of ours that uh, has a tendency of their, of you know, much slower appreciation than Durango. Would that scare you away? No, I think it. I, I think it should align with what you want. So if you're going to buy the property for 30 years and hold it, and you want cash flow, then that's probably a great fit for you. If you're planning on buying this and selling it in five years, like by the time you pay realtor fees, you're not going to make any money on that sale. So I think it just depends on what your goals are. So if your goals are to buy it and you want cash flow then that's a great market for you, you know, because the prices are cheaper and maybe the rents, maybe you're closer to the 1% rule and you're going to cash gonna flow. For- you're going to cash flow that baby for 30 years. It's probably going to appreciate in 30 years. Right. <laughs> right. But if hope. you're, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> um, if you're looking to buy it and sell it and turn, you know, come in, fix it up, sell it really quickly, then, you know, Columbus, Ohio might might not be as good of a market for you. Right. You know, so I think that would be to your question of where with the United States is huge. Where would I pick? Well, what do I want? Do I want it to cash flow more? Do I want it to appreciate more? You know, what are those things? Then you can look at um, then no matter where you're looking, you should look at population growth, job growth, you know, how many different industries are there you can get in a town that was an oil field town. And then all of a sudden, you know, oil goes down and you have a ghost town. You can't rent out your property. These are part of the like due diligence things that you should think about. What's the population trends? What's the trajectory? There's like whole podcasts on this, you know, there's like the craft brewery theme of like, you know, a new craft brewery's coming in. All the millennials are coming. This is a great spot. Yeah. (laughs) I saw somebody on Instagram that, uh, 
they only invest in markets that have Starbucks. Yeah, for sure. You know, let them do the research. If yeah. there's a Starbucks in the market, you can assume that, you know, it's going to be moderately healthy. Right. And so, and then like, and then you get into the neighborhood and you need to understand, you know, what's the demographic of that neighborhood. And then at that point, then you're calling in a property manager and a real estate agent and you're building your local team there. Yeah. Yeah. Are you aware of national population trends? No. You know that we're on the brink of like serious population decline? Oh yeah, I have heard that, yeah. I'm curious, and this is a tangent, but because I'm curious your thoughts on it. I've often wondered what that might mean for the real estate market with a little bit of a longer time horizon. Like two generations from now, we're going to have way less people than we have now. Like, cause it's a, uh, it goes exponentially up and exponentially down once people stop having kids and people have stopped having kids. So we're two, three generations away from exponentially less people. Yeah. Wow, what does that do to real estate investing? And I know you don't, you know, I don't know. Two generations for now. I'll say in the, let's say five to 10 year time frame, we are still super underbuilt for our population needs. And that in 2008, everybody stopped building. And now us millennials are coming child settling down ages and there's just not enough houses. So you always see these headlines of like the real estate market is crashing again. And the fundamentals of it are just that that supply and demand supply and demand. And there's a huge demand. We're a huge generation and there's not been enough houses being built yeah. to catch up. And even now I saw something in multifamily cause there's like a, a decent, chunk of new multifamily coming on the market in 2024. And then again, just like nothing in 2025 because it's gotten so expensive to build that yeah. it just doesn't make sense. Let's talk about multifamily. I love it. How does somebody get into multifamily? Like what, what was the, I know that you had your own kind of journey, but there's a lot of hype, I guess, around and probably a lot of validity around multifamily investing. Obviously there's more doors and, you know, more, more tenants and things like that. Um, how do people get into, to multifamily? What are the, what are the best ways to, to start that? And should somebody start there? Uh, maybe a controversial opinion, but my opinion is no, you should start with something small and you should learn. My first property was not an excellent buy. And if that first property had been a $2 million apartment complex, things would have gotten bad. <laughs> and so I, I personally believe that people should start small. House hack, one doors, two doors, just get your feet wet, kind of understand what's actually going on before you scale. I would say the exception to that is people who partner with experienced people or people that have really experienced coaches. I feel like there are some ways to sidestep that, but if it's just you going out, I would not recommend starting in anything too big that if it doesn't go well, it can ruin you financially. Right. Again, back to my like risk adverse opinions. It's better to to start out a little small, learn your mistakes on something small before you go big. Make a $5,000 mistake before you make a $500,000 mistake. Right, exactly. Like I, my first property didn't really cash flow the first two years because I didn't, I didn't understand the way I was running my numbers. And it was fine because it was off by like a couple hundred dollars and I could float that. And it's cash flowing now thanks to market growth, basically. Right. But um, if that had been a huge 
property, it would have been different. And what, what mistake did you make? I'm sorry. I, wa- yeah. I still want to talk about multifamily, yeah. but I, I would love to learn from that first one. How did you run the numbers wrong? I didn't, I didn't calculate all the expenses correctly. Mm. I just underestimated there's an HOA on there. Um, there's, you know, and it, it's been pretty good, but there's still expenses that happen. And I just underestimated what those would be based on the year of the house. Right. And so, and like I ran the numbers on it and it cash flowed, but it was really tight. I didn't understand the conservative level for which you need to underwrite because it's always better to do that. Right. And like even just looking at it now, it doesn't it I bought it for two hundred and fifty thousand. It started out renting at fifteen hundred. That's not your one percent rule. Therefore, it's gonna be really hard, even at the low interest rate I got then, to make that cash flow. I would never look at something now that costs two hundred and fifty and rents for fifteen hundred. Yeah. Like now I'm like, oh, of course not. But I didn't know. And so I'm glad I took the jump. And I'm glad I took the jump on something small. Yeah. Mine isn't near the 1% rule, but is cash flowing. Great. And I wonder, I mean, we we bought it in 2021. Yeah. I think the interest rate's on it's three. Yeah. Maybe. Yes. Um, which actually I have another question for you on that. Just generally speaking, I've heard that a great way to scale real estate investing is to leverage you know, leverage your, your current assets or, or the equity that you're building. And I'm super torn on that one because home prices have gone up a ton since yeah. I bought it. So yeah. there's a fair amount of equity, mm-hmm. but I'm into it at 3%. So I'm like, how in the world do I leverage that? You know, it, what's your opinion with the current, the current dynamics and current realities of home values appreciating tremendously, but interest rates going up so much as well. There's probably a whole lot of people out there with, you know, a, a house that's at two, three, four 4% interest, but has some equity in it. Do you think that there's upside in leveraging that knowing that you'll have higher percent, uh, higher, higher percent interest rates on, on the debt, or is it better to like, I don't know, ride out the 3% forever? I personally would look at a second like a HELOC on it, instead of I would not refinance out of a 3% on something, unless your cash flow is so crazy that it could handle that, then maybe that's the right decision for you. But like I have a HELOC on one of my properties because I have a ton of equity in it. And that just sits there and it's just that line of credit basically on the property. It's not a great interest rate, but it's $100,000 that I can pull from if I need to, and then I find a way to refinance and pay it off. So there's also a strategy called the Burr strategy, which is- Tell uh, us about it. Buy, oh, I better not mess it up. Buy, uh, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And basically you buy an ugly property. So Reese and I have done this successfully once. I'm going to call it mostly luck, but- um, you buy a property that has some issues. We bought a property with uh, foundation issues and you buy it in cash. We bought it in cash with using like HELOCs and hard money from friends and family. So you're buying it at a high interest rate. This is not how you want to leave it, but it gives you an edge in the negotiations because you're a cash offer to them. So we bought it as cash. And we came in and we did barely any rehab, honestly. Again, this is a lot of luck. But in other um, other 
people would do like an actual rehab. And then you rent it out. Now you have these lovely rent numbers that you show the bank and then you go to refinance. And so we actually got all of our money out. So, and with the 20% down was just equity. So we paid off all of our HELOCs completely. We now own that property with no equity, none of our money in it. And those HELOCs you were doing on other... Other Other rental properties that we own that had a ton of equity in it. But instead of refinancing and taking all of that cash out, you just do the HELOC, which which I like because when you're not using it, you're not paying interest on it. So if you refinance your property, then you have that bigger- Forever. Forever. If you have a second, like mine's a second lien HELOC. And so like I have it sitting there right now, I have a $0 balance on it. But if I wanted to go be aggressive on something. So like right now, theoretically, do you find a deal that needs 50 grand, $50,000? You could just tap in your HELOC, get it and be done. Yep. My HELOC, and I know there's, I'm not a banker. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Mine is an adjustable rate. So it's like 10% or something stupid right now. So it's not a great interest rate, but it does give you that liquidity that you need to do something. I would never buy and be like, oh, I'm just going to use this HELOC forever because it's a horrible interest rate. But it's a good way to give you that like quick liquidity that you need. And then you would refinance into something more stable and then pay that HELOC back off. Clarify that for me. So I'm understanding the first half of that. You've got a property. You can leverage it by way of a HELOC. Yeah, which is a second lien. Well, yeah, which is essentially more debt on the the first property. Yes. Higher interest rate, whatever. But it doesn't make you have to sell the property or refinance it or anything. No. Basically, then you can take out some cash, loaning it on the your equity in the property. Yep. You can purchase then another property with it. Yes. How then do you refinance the HELOC? You refinance this second property over here with better debt. Got like it. Uh, some sort of agency debt that's so maybe that, at like 6% or whatever. And then you take that once you refinance and pay that HELOC back off. So the the advice would be not using HELOC just for like a standard long-term down payment, but more of something that you can f- move quicker, like a, a burr strategy or a buy something cash or- yeah. Yes, that would be my recommendation in the current market. I know for sure when interest rates were 4% or whatever, people were using HELOCs uh, to be the down payment that they left on a long-term property over here. But right now, and and again, I think that there's fixed rate HELOCs, but I'm not really sure. I don't have one. Mine's an adjustable rate HELOC. So I would not want something permanent tied to that right yeah yeah because now with with you know rates when they were so low and now that they're so much higher doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do like a cash out refinance or anything like that no yeah that's why there's no inventory on the market right (laughs) right yeah 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 awesome okay back to multifamily yes um i know that you've kind of ventured into a new new world not new but you're you're now wearing a different hat Yes. In your real estate investing world, doing asset management. Mm-hmm. Can you educate me on that, how that whole world works and you know what you're doing with, with asset management, why it's so important? Yeah. First of all, I'll just say that when I tell people I'm an asset manager for a multifamily syndication, it's a conversation killer <laughs> because no, <laughs> one, good, like, no one knows what I'm talking yeah. about. No. 
<laughs> so what do you do? Uh-oh. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And then they walk away. Um, so first of all, we talked about the person who has more time than money. We talked about that person investing. Now we're talking about the person who maybe has more money than time. Mm. And this is where I think multifamily syndication comes in. And so basically multifamily syndication is a group of people coming together to buy a big property and everybody gets a percentage ownership of that property based on the amount of money they put in. So, you know, you own a Five, I'm not good at mental math. So you own a 5% share of a $15 million property. And there's two parts of a- Don't pick 15 for mental math, by the way. I, Make I, just, I don't do- <laughs> 10 million. Actually, I still can't do- I just can't do mental math. Million. Give me a spreadsheet. Yeah. I need anyway, a spreadsheet. Um, I thought 5% and 10 would be easy, but it's not. It's none of it's easy. That's why we have spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So in a multifamily syndication, you have a group called the general partners, the GPs. And these are the people who are in charge of finding the deal and then managing the deal after it closes. And then everybody else is limited partners, LPs. And LPs are where regular people can invest in these syndications. So most of them have a starting point of $25,000. So it's not a huge amount. So you can invest like 25,000 to millions as a limited partner. And limited partners have no decision-making on the day-to-day of how it's run. You put your money in and you do a very careful job of vetting the general partnership team and the actual deal. But then you're a small owner of this property. And what's cool about it is um, from a tax perspective, it's like you own a small piece. Oh, cool. So you get depreciation and all of that. You get a K-1 from the syndication at the end of the year. And oftentimes you have a small K-1 or sometimes even a negative K-1 based on the depreciation, even though you got um, quarterly payments for your percentage share. Yeah. So that's, so that's the LP part. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. That's what I just was. I was thinking about how I've, I'm going to ask you about depreciation. Oh afterwards. boy. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Put on my tax. There's hat. so we'll much see. to this. Yeah. So much. So, okay. GPs, LPs. Yep. Totally understand that. Where does asset management yeah. come into play? How does, how does all the, all those details work? Yeah. So asset management is a GP role. So I'm on the GP team and I'm in charge of looking at how this property operates. Um, So I will give you, I'm still working on this, but a football analogy. My husband's helping me with this. (laughs) So on football team, you have the general manager and they are in charge of like the big picture of this team. How are we going to fill the stadiums? How are we, what are ticket prices going to be? What kind of team are we building? Who are the coaches going to be? They're in charge of like the big strategic direction of the team. And then you have a coach and that's the property manager. And they're in charge of like calling the plays and everything like that. So on a big apartment complex, we're talking like 50 to 200 units. A a, a complex. A a complex. Not a duplex. Not a duplex. You don't have an asset manager for a duplex. You have it for a big property. And the asset manager is in charge of the strategic direction of the property and investors. So my job is to help us hit investor returns. And that looks like are we going to take this money and are we going to renovate units? And if so, how much is that going to increase rent? Does that make sense? And then my job is to work with the property manager to help execute that, to make sure that the property is run well, 
and that it's run in a way that helps us hit our investor returns. Wow. So give me some examples. What, what types of things are you looking for when you're, you know, you've got that 30,000 foot yeah. perspective on it. I mean, are you looking at amenities, yeah. parking, marketing? I don't know. Like what? Look, you're already, you're doing it, Ben. You're doing it. You can be an asset manager. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yes. So there's um, what... I love about it is that there's like some really crazy, like minute detail that goes into that and also some really big picture things. So yes, on the property, is there a dog park we could add? Is there, you know, does, should we add a pool? Should we convert one of our units to a workout center? Is there like package holding for Amazon? You know, is our laundry room contract correct? There's big picture things like that, but it's also an asset manager's job to look in the absolute details. So I pull the general ledger. I'm looking at every single expense that has gone in and out of the door before my calls with my property managers. You know, are we, why are we spending this? Does this make sense? You know, are we getting multiple bids on renovations? Because it's a big chunk of money if you have 100 units going in and out the door and it's easy it's easy to let things slide yeah. it's easy to it's easy for your property manager and property managers have a phenomenally difficult job so this is not a bash on property managers i'm saying their job is really difficult and so it's easy to let things be the easiest for yeah. them right like it's easiest for them to have a painter who's their favorite who they just call but have they bid this out multiple times? Is that the difference between seven hundred and fifty and a thousand dollars on turning a unit? Well, if we turn fifty units this year, that's a huge chunk of change. Like that's a meaningful amount of money. Right. And so it's looking at all of those details. Okay, we have four leases coming due next month. Which ones have re-signed? Which ones have not? How do we protect ourselves so that we don't have 20% vacancy on our property because that will kill our NOI for the month. And so how are we renegotiating our leases? How are we, if we have vacant units, how quickly are we getting those filled? What's our marketing? What's our reviews online? Should we be billing people back for their utilities? Should we not? Are we capturing pet fees? Do people have pets and we're not capturing the pet fees? Like that's the cool thing about asset management is like this really tiny, tiny, tiny detail down to how does that build the picture for the bigger vision of the property? Right. Yeah. How cool. Because there's probably, I mean, not probably, there's guaranteed pressure from the investment group. Right. There you know, should be, as yeah. as there should be, right. because they're giving you their hard-earned money. And I take that very seriously. I know there's a lot of feelings in the media about rich people or whatever, but these are good people giving you their money with your trust that you're going to operate this the best way possible. And that's why I feel that asset management is important, is because my job is to say, okay, we promised them 7% on their money. They're trusting us. They're stuck in the deal now. Yeah. Yeah, you can't back out they as a limited partners. <laughs> yeah. And so how do we make sure we give our investors the returns that we promise them? And at the same time, I also take seriously that like, again, I care about our tenants, tenants yeah. and we want this to be a good place to live. And so heater broke in our property and it was $15,000. Like, absolutely. We have got to fix that as soon as possible. Don't get a second bid, get it fixed. Our tenants need to be warm. Get like it fixed yesterday. Yeah. Right. Like there's also making it a good place for our tenants to live because we care about our tenants. Right. Yeah. So are landlords the bad guys? 
always were mean, horrible people. And yeah, I have some feelings about that. (laughs) Well, it's probably a conversation worth having because the, you know, there's so much, there's so much complexity in the real estate market and there's so many strong emotions in the real estate market and, you know, these barriers to entry and first time home buyers, it's, it's becoming so difficult for, you know, young first time home buyers and, sure. and things like that. I am kind of curious. I, I saw, I don't know if it happened or not, but I saw that there's maybe talk of it, some legislation of basically what's the word for it, but they're like, uh, like hedge funds purchasing single family homes and making that illegal. <laughs> and I don't know if it happened or not, but there was like a, a, some conversation of it. What are your, like, where's the line? What are your thoughts on that? Of like, when does it be, when does it go from a bunch of good people trusting you with their money to provide a good place to live for other good people to like, okay, this is getting crazy. And there's, <laughs> you know, such and such corporation is, is bought the neighborhood type of thing. It's more of a speculative thing. Yeah. I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on it. I think, and this is, a mostly educated opinion, but also some of this might be wrong. I believe that it's still a pretty small percentage of the overall marketplace and that it is easy to get very concerned about hedge funds buying the neighborhood. And I believe it's in the single digits, the number of single family homes in the United States owned by things like hedge funds. Mm. And so- Do you know the percentage of that are owned by investors? I'd be curious I about think that. that that's higher, but- the majority of investment properties are owned by mo- mom and pop yeah. landlords. So like, I again, I don't know the numbers, but let's say investment owners make up 20, 30% of the marketplace. And let's say 70% of those are owned by people who own six or less properties. Yeah. And so I think that that maybe is not the right place for us to be feeling really stressed out about. And that maybe there's some other things that we should be talking about, about how we can better compensate young people and give them salaries and better buying powers or very for like the first time home buyer programs that provide lower down payment relief and anything like that. I think that that might be a better way to deal with it in a big picture view versus like, oh, the hedge funds are going to buy all the houses and that's why the prices are so high. It's just like, if you look at the numbers, that's not why. Yeah. We got a grant for our first time home. You did? Not a lot. A couple grand. I don't remember, yeah. but it was great. And it, it helped us into it. And then it's actually, it's interesting, similar to your story. We bought that house just down the road from you. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was in such bad shape that my wife didn't want to show her parents. <laughs> like, it was so run down that we wouldn't, I would not show my in-laws the house. We were like, no, we're, we, yeah, we've got work, to, you know, whatever. That was one of those more time than money. Yep situations for us we bought it with a three percent down down payment yeah some of which was a grant yeah so i think you know i i probably put in five grand and i got five grand in grant but i don't remember the numbers but yeah basically spent the next two years doing sweat equity yep. and similarly you know i was making 45 50 you know who knows 50 grand a year and when we sold it we made 80 yeah and i was like oh <laughs> Total, you know, like, whoa, that, that changed, it literally changed my life. Yeah. Let us get that. That was way less work than my job. (laughs) Way less less stressful. Yeah. Curious your thoughts on, 
REITs, real estate investment trusts, and how does that work into the mix of people that are wanting to, you know, start with some experience in real estate investing or, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is for anybody listening, it is a low barrier to entry, you know, those ones. What are your thoughts on, actually first educate the listeners on what a real estate investment trust is and, and I'm curious your opinion on it. Yes. I've never invested in one, so I have less experience um, with REITs. maybe I can talk about it. Yeah. I don't have a lot of experience. No, but I want to hear your thoughts. My understanding of REITs is that they are traded more like a stock on the market. And so the biggest down, well, two things. First of all, you're just putting your money in a fund, and then that fund is going out and buying a bunch of different properties. So the upside of that is that it's pretty diversified. You know, if they buy one bad deal, they have all these other deals that hopefully together will bring you up. From a tax perspective, you lose all the benefits of investing in real estate. So that's why I've never invested in a REIT, is that it's real estate, but without the tax benefits, which is like half of what makes real estate really cool. Yeah. And yeah, so you're taxed like a stock on growth and you have no depreciation. That's, yeah, that's yeah. that's why I've never invested in REITs. It's in some ways a similar model as syndication, except for syndication, you're buying a share mm. of one property, which is why you, you get- actually own it. You actually yeah. own it versus a REIT, you're just like a stock. You're just owning a part of a company. Right. And so you have to trust the company. Yeah. yeah. No, fair enough. And so I've got, I've, I was mentioning earlier that I, I use the stock market to kind of help me get yeah. to, to real estate investing. And there's one that I, it's the ticker is O if anybody's interested, but it's a like light use commercial, basically like think uh, it's, I'm sure it's not, but like town plaza, like places like that, yeah. you know, kind of outdoor where there's a Walgreens and, yeah. a, you know, a hair salon yeah. type place. But what I love about it is that it pays a monthly dividend. Mm. So you get a little bit of the cash flow from it and then you can set it up to automatically reinvest. Yeah. It's kind of like you're saying, you know, stacking the cash to, yeah. to use it again on such a tiny level. And I think shares of O are like 50 bucks. So you can get into that for, you could literally invest in real estate for $50. Yeah. It might be that has a much smaller barrier to entry. Yeah. That has less time and less money than actually being an owner right. of some of the other ways I've discussed. A good alternative, I think, yeah. for, you know, if, if if somebody's sitting here with a couple hundred bucks and wondering where to put it. For sure. But and then maybe have... they could grow it to something where they could then pull it out. Yeah. 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 Forever. So we have a, it's hip camp is what it's called. It's on our property. It's kind of like Airbnb, oh, yeah. but for campsites. Oh yeah. And every time I get a deposit from hip camp, I buy O. I don't know why, but I, I use that money to buy REIT and then reinvest the dividends. And nice. it's like my little like microcosm of compounding for, you know, renting out a corner of my, of my property. But to your point, there's no tax benefits. So I want to pick your brain on that too. And how, you know, all of that works. I, there was a time my dad had an opportunity, his parents passed and they had a condo that, you know, he was thinking about, he was thinking about buying if my dad's listening, I got nothing but love, but my dad is very risk averse. Like he'll tell you to your face that we've always had enough because he's been so risk adverse, but we'll never have so much because he's so risk adverse. Amazing guy. I learned so much from him, but anyway, he, he chose not to do it because of, you know, the, I think kind of some misguided te- tax implications and, you know, cash flow calculations and, and things like that. And now that I've learned more and he's learned more, obviously, you know, hindsight's 
2020, but you look back and you're like, ah, <laughs> that <laughs> maybe, lots of those. <laughs> maybe that should have happened. But would love to for you to educate me and and anybody listening on what all the tax advantages are in real estate and you know what to look for, things to be aware of. Because you know you kind of talked about doing your due diligence and running the numbers and things like that. And I think that's such an important thing that people don't take into consideration. Like when I bought my first one, I was like, what do I think it can rent for? And I ballparked it. I'm like, oh, 1500, maybe like whatever. What's the mortgage? 1200. All right. Deal. That's yep. my, you know, and that's the extent of my, you know, my expertise in like actual putting it to paper plan, uh, underwriting as you would call it. Yeah. So I think that it's something that probably people should know more about and have as a bigger consideration when they're looking at real in, real estate investment. So tell, tell me about tax advantages. Tax advantages of real estate. So first of all, I'll tell you about just repeat on the house hacking piece. If you live in a rental property for two years, when you sell it, you do not pay any capital gains on the appreciation. So that can be huge. People also do uh, live-in flips and they can, you can buy like a big house, you know, you buy a $500,000 house, live in it for two years, flip it, so I think the it's like $250,000 per person you can get and not pay just like you did with your 80,000. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say that that was a live in flip. I just yeah. didn't know it. It was a, look at you. You were a live in flip. You did a live in <laughs> flip and there's no tax consequences to that. So if you made 80,000 in the stock market depending on your tax bracket, you pay when you sell your taxes right. or when you uh sell, sell your, your stock. And so there's that piece, but what happens every year on real estate is there's something called depreciation and it is magical and only in the world of taxes. And it is basically giving you a deduction off of your income. I'm going to give my disclaimer now. I am not a CPA. This is my understanding. <laughs> it is a deduction based on the useful life of the building. So they'll take your building and break that out from the land. And let's say your property is worth 500000 and the land value is 100000 and the building value is 400000 They then, I think it's 27. 27.5, I think. Yeah. So then they take that and they give you a deduction every year for your value over 27 years, a percentage, like 400,000 divided by 27 years. And that's, that's essentially a write-off. Yes. It's a write-off. So let's- Reduces your taxable- your income. taxable income. Right. So what's cool about real estate is that you, let's say you Meanwhile, made- Meanwhile, it's appreciating. Right. Your properties, yeah. Depreciation is not the opposite of appreciation, which is very confusing. So yeah, let's say you made $10,000 cash flow on your property at the end of the year, and you have $5,000 depreciation expense. You only pay taxes on 5000 of that. Mm. So it's- basically income that doesn't get taxed. Right. Um, the caveat to that and thing, something that I don't think people think about is that when you sell that property, there is something called depreciation recapture, which I understand marginally in that you have to pay the government back a portion of that depreciation that you took. So that's something to consider, especially for there's something called a cost segregation study. Again, this gets um, for the most part on bigger 
properties multifamily where they go in and they take, let's say your fridge has a five-year life, then you depreciate the cost of your fridge over five years and it can get you, this is how on the large multifamilies you get a negative K1 for the first year because you go in and do a cost segregation study and you speed up the depreciation on all these items that won't last 27 years. And then you say, oh my gosh, we made $100,000, but we have 130,000 in depreciation negative K1. Mm. And so, but the, but again, the flip side of that is when you go to sell that, you need to be aware that you will recapture some of that depreciation you took. Right. Do you have to do that if you're doing a 1031? Do you Good know? question. Great question. No. How do, do 1031s not. work too? By yeah. The way. So a 1031 is a cool vehicle designed by our government to incentivize real estate investors. And basically, if you have an investment property that you have not lived in, because if you lived in it, you don't care, and you're just going to sell it. But if you have an investment property that you haven't lived in, and you are wanting to sell it and buy another one, you can go through a company that helps you do this legally. And you basically roll your money from one property into the other one, and you never pay capital gains, and you don't pay your depreciation recapture. And it's kicking the can down the road. Because eventually, yeah. Eventually you'll have to pay it unless you kick the can down your road until you die and then your kids inherit it and then it all disappears. Right. As as the tax code stands now. Right. Yeah. You, did you do 1031s on any of yours? I have not done really? any 1031s. No. My partner has done one and he said that, that it is just tricky, especially in today's market. And- I don't remember the saying, don't let the tax tail wag the investment dog mm. is the thing. And so you just have to be careful because it's a really tight timeline. So you have like 45 days to get something under contract. It has to be a like asset. You know, there's all sorts of rules. And what you don't want to do is buy a bad deal to make the 1031 work in your time frame because it would be better to just pay your taxes and then buy something that's well thought out and not rushed. Right. So if you can, if you have a good deal, if you're in a market where there's plenty of good deals, just don't rush. Don't force don't let the tax tail wag the dog. I like that investment dog. Don't yeah. let it do it. Yeah, it's yeah. Smart. Yeah. Do you feel like, like looking back now, I just think it's so cool to hear, you know, your story and your journey and your, your progress progression however many years ago when you were in college and, you know, you, you, you know, I don't know, begged, stole and borrowed <laughs> to get a down payment from your parents and, and make that happen. You know, looking forward now to having 17 doors and this amazing portfolio and all this expertise and the amazing impact that that makes on your family and your kids and, you know, the, the stress reduction and the life. I mean, it's just amazing. And I'm just kind of curious did has all this been intentional or did, has it kind of like happened? You know, I mean, obviously at some point you became very intentional about it, but there it's, it's quite the progression. And I just would love to hear your feelings on it, your thoughts on, you know, taking a minute to look back and see where you've come and how the journey has been and how it's, how it's evolved. Yeah. My dad always says luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And I feel like like that's a bit how my journey has gone. Like 
I have been, first of all, I just love real estate. I could talk about it all day for no money. I would just do it. Um, and so I find it really interesting and I find these podcasts interesting about 1031s exchange and tax, whatever. I don't know why, because I'm weird. But so first of all, or smart, part of it just comes from an interest in it. And, but so I've been doing the research for a long time and listening to people much smarter than I am ready being staying ready. So then when the opportunity presents itself, I'm ready. And I think my jump into syndications was like that. So I've been going to meetups in Durango here since I believe I was pregnant with my son. So 2018 and I've just been going and the real estate community is amazing that everybody's so willing to share anything like open book. People are like, how much are you worth? What'd you pay for that? You know, what'd you, where'd you screw up? Open book. Everybody's willing to help. So I've been going for five years, just talking to people, listening as I slowly started to grow. And I went up to the guy who leads the group. His name's Eric Nelson. I went up to him. I'd just been coming out of a really hard time. I had a baby, my son, and my mom had been in chemo for some really aggressive cancer. I was her primary caregiver. I call it my season of care. That's about as gently as I can describe that time. And I'm coming out of it and I go to Eric and I say, okay, I want, I want to work with investors. And I think I'm good at being organized and I'm good at helping people who are really visionary execute on things. And I said, you know, as you think about it over the next couple months, do you know anybody who any investors who maybe could use my help. And he was like, me, let me know when you're ready. And he's with Wild Oak Capital and he's my partner in our new company, Aligned Asset Management. And so it's like I, I'd been doing all of this research and building my portfolio slowly. And I showing put myself up. out there showing up, being consistent. He knew who I was. You know, he knew some of my stuff. He knew that I was consistent and you know, nice and whatever. And so then when I put myself out there, it was like, boom, opportunity. And it turns out he really needed that help, that more analytical side to help with his asset management. And I did a bunch of work for him for free. Yeah. 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 But paying your dues. Paying my dues. I was like, look, I'm going to bring value. And I did, I charged him a little bit, but I charged him nothing compared to how many hours I did of work for him. And I proved my value. And he was like, yeah, let's, yeah. let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. The other theme that I think is interesting to, to kind of pull from, from your story, but the, that I think applies for, to so many people in so many different instances, but that willingness to have delayed gratification, like, I think it's so important for people to recognize, you know, if you're house hacking or investing in real estate or whatever it is that like, I don't know, somehow trying to articulate this time horizon that you've had to where it is possible to have 17 doors and, you know, this, this amazing real estate portfolio, but it wasn't always like that. Like you had to be willing to have delayed gratification and stack the cash when you, you know, it could have been a car payment or, you know, you could have gone on the trip or whatever. Sure. And I just think it's so refreshing to hear that there was some intentionality behind delayed gratification. Like I'm going to keep reinvesting. I'm because I, 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 the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I struggle with that in a huge way. Nicole and I are in the thick of delayed gratification right now, <laughs> you know, like big family, tiny house, struggling business, you know, rocking and rolling with it all. But knowing that 
you know, they're, they're, we're working towards something. And I just think that that's a good, would love to just kind of hear your advice or your thoughts on people for delayed gratification. You know, the fact that the struggle's worth it, just kind of like your, your, your takeaways from your journey as it relates to that. Cause I know that there's been sacrifices to get you to where you are. Yeah. I think that a lot of people look at real estate, especially anybody who has had any success and be like, that's so sexy. And you know, it's glamorous and it was so fast Cash and now they're, and yeah, now they're rich. And it's like, that's not the story for most people or anybody. I don't know anybody who has done it in a way where they weren't fixing toilets first, you know? And so I think just having that understanding that it is a great way to build wealth and it's a slow and steady game and a progression that goes up. And yeah, I guess um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think we've talked about this a little, the delayed gratification. And I'm reading this new this book called Die With Zero, and it's challenging my innate drive to not spend it and save it and save it and save it and save it. And like, you know, anyways, it's a really interesting book challenging like, when you should be enjoying the fruits of your labor. And oh. so uh, I'll, I'll buy it for you. I'll send you a say, copy. What a, what a, <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, it's really been challenging me on that some, but I also think that, again, if, if somebody's telling you that you're going to invest in real estate and be a multimillionaire next year, like not going to happen. Are they, what are they selling you? Yeah. What, what are they selling? Well, you? and that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a, a rule of thumb for life. For sure. There are no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. Period. No. Like, if anybody's selling you a shortcut, whether it's business, wealth, physical fitness, relationships, whatever, shortcuts don't exist. No. Though I will say that someone I heard on a podcast the other day that the only shortcut to life is hiring a great coach. And I actually did hire my first coach this year or last year. Um, he's an asset manager. And he's, and I'm in his program and that has for sure, I'm not skipping things, but I'm doing, I'm like on a much it's quicker so... upward project trajectory instead of a slower pace. And so I will say, and, and there's some not good coaches out there, but if you can find a good coach who's done what you want to do, it can really help speed that timeline. I think it's so interesting that you bring that up. I just hired my first running coach. Yeah couple months ago and I've been running my whole life. I've been yeah. running marathons since 2019. <laughs> been, I mean, I've been, I run, but I joke now that I've just been kind of forest gumping it, just <laughs> running. And I got a coach a few months ago and I, it, I mean, I exponential improvement, like yeah. wild, wild improvement just because I can't help it. Tell me a little bit about Diva Zero. Like, yeah. I, cause, cause I am stacking it. I mean, I am I am, I don't even buy myself new shoes. I am like everything I can think of because part of it for me is that I feel an obligation as a father to set my family up for success. And that like, if I'm the guy that never gets to enjoy any of this, that's like my duty almost. Like I almost feel a little, I don't know, validated by that and like responsible for that as part of my responsibility as my kids. But I may take it to the extreme because <laughs> I'm I'm serious. There's there's times when, I mean, we just bought our the first thing for ourselves ever, which is a hot tub, and we bought it used on marketplace. And you know, I mean, it's the one thing that we've done like for us. 
And so I'm curious just because, and I know we won't be able to dive all the way in, but I, I'm curious the, the gist of it and how it has forced you to, cause you come from the same, you were cut from the same cloth. Clearly, you, you know, you've, you've made sacrifice after sacrifice to, to go down the path that you've gone down. And how has that challenged? Is that why you have an arena now? No, but, um, so the book challenges you that you have, like, as you look at yourself over time, you have different phases in life where you have more time or more money and you have different phases in life where you're more able to enjoy things. So it's challenging the theory that if you save up everything for retirement, that you can then enjoy your money. And it's like, but then your health is not there mm. in the way, you know, you're not going to go downhill skiing at 75 for the first time. It's that ship has sailed. And if you didn't spend the money when you were 25 or 35 to do those things that you can only do when you're younger, you didn't take the trip with your kids, you didn't do the international trip. And they talk about how when we get older, even though our healthcare costs go up, our ability to spend our money actually goes down because you can only do so much because you can only do so much and you only want to do so much. And so really challenging that idea of like, Oh, I'm going to save everything up for retirement. And he's not saying don't save for retirement. Like he's just saying, be a little more strategic about what you actually need with that understanding that you're probably going to spend less in life. Like maybe buy yourself some long-term care insurance and then spend some of that money while you're young and healthy and have young kids or whatever it is. And then on the kid piece, because I'm very much like, I'm going to save and do whatever for my kids. He talks about how most people who get inheritances get it somewhere between the age 50 and 60. Yeah. And it doesn't matter then because hopefully your kids have already created a successful career. Right. And maybe they inherit a hundred thousand when they're 50 or 60 and like, eh, it's probably nice. But like that's not changing their life at 60. Right. But if you were to take your money and give them, he said, like 25 to 35 is the ideal time to which you can pass. Like actually make an impact on, on their huge life. Huge impact. Help them with, like my parents did, the down payment on the first house. And it changed the trajectory. And it changed the trajectory of my life for $20,000. I hope my parents are listening. Okay. <laughs> $20,000 then versus... If they had have saved that and given me $100,000 in 30 years, I hope that that's not a consequential amount of money for me at that point because I hope I built my own right. legacy and my own wealth. Yeah. Anyways, I'm sending you a copy. It's good. Okay. It's challenging yeah. me. It's challenging <laughs> that me. That will challenge me in a huge way. Yeah. Send a copy to my dad too. Okay. okay. <laughs> be before I'm 35. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Bonnie, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for giving me your time. But more importantly, thank you so much for giving me your knowledge and your expertise. Uh, I think that you, you're you making a huge impact. And it's just awesome to see. Before we wrap, just to, to share, I think that people need to talk about money more. I think people need to talk about investing more. I think we need to talk about real estate more. I think we need to remove the stigma from money and finances and wealth building and all of that, because there's so much misinformation out there. There's so much confusion out there. There's so many people that have opportunities they don't realize. And so I want to thank you for being open to, to talk about money and investing and 
life, love, and the pursuit of happiness <laughs> and all of that good stuff. And I just want you to know how much I appreciate it, how much I admire you, how much I look up to the journey that you've you know, gone down because it inspires the heck out of me to know that maybe someday I could have 17 doors. I have to, uh, you know, be willing to have the delayed gratification and, and all of that. So that's not I have a problem. A, I have a gift for you. Um, and I have one for Darren too, because okay, nice. he started it. He started my, uh, my gears turning, but they're inspired by example shirts. Oh, nice. um, Thank you. and it's because you are inspiring me by your example. Well, on so many things, but real estate investment to stay on topic today. But uh, anyway, all of that to say, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on and just glad to know you.